in the heart of Africa. There is a place known as the land of a thousand hills, lush and green, a land of great vibrancy, full of life, red fertile soil that supports some of the most beautiful landscapes you'll ever see. And yet, like all places in the world where we find tremendous beauty, we also find brokenness, orphaned and vulnerable children with no memory of parents, unseen by society, without the assurance of a meal, the security of shelter, or the dignity of work. But in the gap we find between God's beauty and our brokenness, we believe that God can build a bridge, that grace received and grace shared can turn mourning into dancing, great grief into immeasurable joy, bondage and brokenness, into hope restored and hope renewed. And so today, you are invited on a journey to Rwanda, as together we remember the central affirmation God's story is a story of grace. Well, it is my joy to welcome you to First Methodist Mansfield. My name is David, and I serve as the senior pastor here. Welcome to those at the well uh, and at the well cafe. Last night, I saw that video for the very first time right before I preached. And so I started the sermon in the most professional way I could. I, could. I, I started with, um, hold on, I need a moment. Uh, just because it was so moving uh, for me. If you have your Bible, I want to invite you to turn to Luke chapter 4. If you do not have your Bible, look underneath your chair. You may find a special treat there. We have brand new Bibles here in the well, in the well cafe. It is so fun to look at all you just look down underneath your chair. Uh, I've been um, dreaming and hoping of this for many years uh, through a very generous financial gift from a member of our church. We now have Bibles not only here in our chapel, but upstairs in our loft space. And so uh, if you didn't bring one, there is one here for you. And if you do not have a Bible um, yourself, we would love for you to just take this home as our gift to you. You'll hear me say that each and every week uh, from now on. That's why those are here. So we're actually going to look at three scriptures today, Luke chapter 4, Isaiah 61, and Matthew chapter 5. So if you're using the Bible that we have provided for you, that is page 1598 page 1159, and page 1505. If you have a different Bible, I have no idea what page it's on. Good luck finding it. Uh, but that's, uh, that's where we're going to be. Um, as you're looking for that, let me, let me start by saying I am so thrilled to be here this morning. Uh, first, because I've traveled thousands and thousands of miles in the last month. Uh, but secondly, I have just gone through two of the oddest months in my life, uh, from Christmas to now, uh, if you were here January 11th, the announcement that Mike made, uh, I preached two weeks after that, but wasn't able to be here, was preaching all of our services, and so I haven't stood right here at 11.30 on Wednesday morning, not Wednesday morning, Sunday morning, <laughs> I took my last malaria pill today, so just, that, that's my excuse for anything I say that's totally wrong. 
but I haven't been here since December uh, preaching in this service and preaching live to the Well Cafe, and so I'm really excited to be here. But I want you to know, uh, again, we're, we're all excited to be home, but we were really honored to represent you, to represent your faith uh, with the orphan communities that we support in Rwanda. And if you are brand new, you know nothing about what, what I'm about to share with you. Let me just give you a little bit of history. About 10 years ago, our church started working with a ministry called Zoe Ministry. Uh, and Zoe Ministry began in 2004. Uh, it was a, a ministry that was started by Reverend Greg Jinks. Greg is a United Methodist pastor out of North Carolina. And in its infancy, Zoe Ministry was a ministry that provided relief for orphans in Zimbabwe. So it started as just providing food and medical care to, to orphans in that country. And as it has developed as a ministry, it has grown into a three-year empowerment program where children are, are taught and, and empowered to, to move themselves to a life of self-sufficiency. So rather than just providing food and medical care to kids who needed it and would need it on an ongoing basis, it has developed into an empowerment program where kids are really given the tools and the resources they need uh, to build a self-sufficient life. And we have been working with, uh, with Zoe in this empowerment program for six years. We're in the last year of a three-year commitment with 1,000 orphans in Rwanda. But I want you to know that Zoe Ministry is actually today working in seven countries, in Rwanda, Kenya, Zimbabwe, Malawi, Guatemala, India, and Liberia. And so over the next six weeks, you're going to hear more about our connection, about our trip. We're going to share videos and images with you from that experience. You're going to get to hear from some of the kids that your financial gifts have supported. You're going to get to hear how their lives have been transformed from a life of hopelessness to a life of self-sufficiency. But what I want to do today as we begin this series and look at this, this emphasis, this, uh, a story of grace, is I want to lay some groundwork for you because this is not just like vacation photos, okay? That's not what we're doing over the course of this series. There's a particular reason that we are sharing this story in this season with this emphasis emphasis a story of grace. So I want to lay some groundwork for you so that you can make a connection between this work that we're a part of in Africa and the work that we believe that God is doing in the, in the entire world and the work that we believe that God is doing in each of us, the work of God's grace, the story of God's grace. So let me begin in this way. Some of you know uh, that I was, I was raised in the church. My dad uh, is still a United Methodist minister. He serves a church in Arlington today. And so as a kid, I knew what I was doing on Sunday morning. I mean, that was just, we, we did the same thing every single week. I spent all, all my younger years growing up in, in church. In fact, when I was in elementary school, in Sunday school at that time, we used to give out perfect attendance pins, and I had several of them. I mean, I was a church nerd, if, if, if you know what I mean. I was always, always there. And, and, and in, in my younger years, it was always go to Sunday school, and then we'd go to church after when I went to high school, when I got into high school, my dad moved to a new church that had an early service. And I remember thinking that was so weird to go to church and then go to Sunday school. So backwards. But anyways, so I, I grew up sitting in church with my mother, watching my dad lead a congregation. And as a young child, I learned a few things about church just by osmosis, just by being there. The first thing I learned was I was supposed to be quiet. I learned that because I wasn't very good at it. I was very poor at that. I was very poor at sitting still. I'm still pretty bad at sitting still. If you've ever been just around me, I'm not very good at that. And so have some sympathy for my mother uh, as she had to sit with me through that. If you've ever sat through church with a child, you know how difficult that is. And when your child is the preacher's kid, there's an extra measure of 
not grace, but expectation. So, you know, that, that was kind of growing up. That's what it was like uh, for me. You sat still. You did the activities, whatever it was. The other thing that I realized growing up in church as just a young kid, I learned that there were some things that were important about church, things that we did each and every week that, that I didn't do in anywhere else in, in my life. One of them was, was singing. Like, I, I didn't go anywhere else. And think about this. We really don't go anywhere else. We're just, let's start with a song. You know, that's just not what we do in any other gathering. But we sang a lot in church. The other thing that we did is we would often repeat words together. We, we would share words together. And, and the first place I noticed this was in the context of, of the prayer time. So everybody closes their eyes, and one person talks for a little while, and then everybody starts talking together, and you're thinking, I don't know what that is, but that must be important. It's the, that's how I learned the Lord's Prayer, was hearing people around me saying the Lord's Prayer in worship. The other thing that my dad did in the, in the way he structured worship every week is we had what was called an affirmation of faith, okay? So we'd have an opening hymn, everybody would stand up, choir, orchestra, you know, organ, all that kind of stuff. And then my dad would step into the pulpit. And I remember when I was really young that my dad had a pulpit that was like literally stepping up into the pulpit, you know. And so he would get up there and he'd have his robe on and his stole and he would say, would you please remain standing as we affirm our faith together with the modern affirmation number 883. Now 883 was a clue or 885 was a clue for, for people in, in the service to pull out this book some of you have no idea what this is. This is called a hymnal, okay? And this is how we used to sing. <laughs> Didn't have screens and stuff. So we'd turn to the back of this book, and we would all read together the affirmation of faith. The modern affirmation was one of my dad's favorites. And it always would begin with the pastor or the leader saying this, where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is the one true church, apostolic and universal, whose holy faith let us now declare. Now, as a kid, I had no idea what any of those words meant. I thought they sounded cool. I mean, it was, it, it was you know, lots of pomp and circumstance involved with this, but I had no idea what they meant, but I knew they were important. I knew they were important because we said them every single week, and then the congregation would join in together, and they would read from this modern affirmation. There was another statement of faith that my dad would, would use on a, a more limited basis. He really liked the modern affirmation. But 883 uh, is the other one that he would use, and it has an opening that was a little bit easier for my young mind uh, to understand. It's, it starts by simply saying this, we are not alone, we live in God's world. We are not alone, we live in God's world. So let me invite you just to say that with me. We are not alone, we live in God's world. Say it with me one more time. We are not alone, we live in God's world. Here's how the rest of the statement reads. We believe in God who has created and is creating, who has come in Jesus, the word made flesh, to reconcile and to make new, who works in us and others by the Spirit. We trust in God. We are called to be the church, to celebrate God's presence, to love and serve others, to seek justice and resist evil, to proclaim Jesus, died and risen, our judge and our hope. And in life, in death, in life beyond death, God is with us. We are not alone. Thanks be to God. Now, I wanted to begin by telling you that story and reading you that statement, because I want to, what I want to suggest to you as we begin this series is this, is that if you are a person of faith, you believe certain things are true. I mean, that's what sets you apart. That's what's different about you, is that there are certain things that you believe are true. And because you believe in these things, because you believe these things are true, 
it changes the way that you live every single moment of your life. It changes the way you think. It changes how you speak. It changes how you interact. Because to be a person of faith is to believe that certain things are true, to see these truths as the foundation of your life, and to recognize that every moment of your life flows from these truths. Truths like, we are not alone. We live in God's world. If you believe that, if you're a person of faith who builds your life on that conviction, then what I would suggest to you is that changes your life. That changes the way you see your life. That changes the way you approach not only moments of success and celebration, but also moments of grief and sorrow. I am not alone. I live in God's world. And to be a person of faith is to believe that certain things are true. Building your life on that foundation and every decision, every interaction of your life flowing out of those convictions that, that represent the foundation of who you are. And what I want to read to you today from Luke chapter 4 are those affirmations and those convictions that guided the life of Jesus. These are words that Jesus shares in the very beginning of his ministry. And what I want to suggest to you is that these are words, these are beliefs that guided everything that Jesus did. So Luke chapter 4, beginning of verse 14, let me just read you this section. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through the whole countryside. He was teaching in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. He went to Nazareth, where we, he had been brought up, and on the Sabbath day he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now, a little bit of context here. Luke 4 is the beginning of Jesus's public ministry in the gospel of Luke. So Luke chapter 3, we find the baptism of Jesus. The beginning of Luke 4, Jesus is sent into the wilderness where he is tested and prepared for this next phase of his life that begins in this section that I just read to you. So it, it begins for Jesus by going to his hometown synagogue and reading from the scroll. So they didn't have Bibles. The technology of their time was a scroll that you would, would roll out to a particular place. And Jesus reads a passage, a passage that represents the core convictions of his life. Everything that he did from this moment forward that culminated in the cross from Isaiah 61. So I want to read to you, if you'll jump over to Isaiah 61, I want to give you a little bit fuller context of what Jesus is reading here. Isaiah 61, the first three verses says this, The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me, because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn and provide for those who grieve in Zion. Zion is another name for Israel, Jerusalem. To bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes. That's where the song comes from, by the way. The oil of joy instead of mourning and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. And then they, those whom he has restored, will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. So Luke 4, 
And Isaiah 61, this moment in the life of Jesus and, and the fuller context of this passage that he quotes from, uh, what I want to suggest to you is that these are the core convictions of Jesus' life. This is what guided him in every single moment of his life, leading him eventually to the cross. This understanding of what he was called to do and who he was called to be. So let's spell out a little bit what that means. First, Jesus believed that he had been anointed to proclaim good news. Is one of his convictions, one of his affirmations about his life, that God had set him aside. That's what anointed means, to be given a charge to proclaim good news, which is good news for us, that Jesus came to bring good news. I mean, we like good news, right? I mean, aren't you excited when someone says, I have good news for you? Uh, imagine how you would feel if during this service your phone rang and you very politely silenced it. You, you waited till the end of the service and you listened to the voicemail and it was someone who you love, someone who you trust, and you heard their voice on, on that voicemail saying, call me back, I have good news. How quickly would you return that phone call? I mean, I would be immediate, like call back, I want to know good news, right? You want to hear that. I, I don't know what your answer is to the question when someone says, I have good news and I have bad news, which would you like to hear first? I always say good news, hoping that in the sharing of the good news, they'll forget the bad news, right? <laughs> that's a suggestion if you answer it differently. We love good news, right? That's, that's great. Jesus came to bring good news. That is good news for us, that Jesus believed he had been anointed to proclaim good news. But here's what I want you to notice uh, in Luke 4, but also particularly in Isaiah 61, that Jesus understood that this good news was intended for a particular audience. There were groups of people that Jesus said were specifically meant to be the recipients of the good news that he was going to share from, from Isaiah 61. The poor, the brokenhearted, the captives, the prisoners, those who mourn, those who grieve, those who have a spirit of despair. These were, were the people that Jesus had, had come to share this good news with. These were the ones who were specifically identified as those who were meant to be the recipients of this good news. See, we don't think about this all the time. We don't, we don't think about it, but when, when we hear good news sometimes, not all the times, but sometimes when we hear good news, it's because someone else has heard bad news. Sometimes our good news is connected to someone else's bad news. Sometimes the news that we have plenty, sometimes, not all the time, but sometimes the news that we have plenty means that someone else has need. But Jesus believed that he had come to proclaim good news to those who needed it the most, to the poor, to the brokenhearted, to those who were mourning, those who were grieving, those who were captive, those who were prisoners, those who were clouded by a spirit of despair. Jesus came believing that he had been anointed to proclaim good news to the people who needed it most. And isn't this what we love about Jesus? That at our own moment of great need, when we find ourselves at a dead end, when life falls apart, when the job is over, when it feels like the marriage is going to end, when the child is wondering, when we hear the doctor say cancer, when we enter into those moments of life where we are at our point of greatest need, we believe that Jesus came to bring good news there, to be present and to bring news of hope and restoration and, and resurrection into those places in our life. This is part of what we love about Jesus, that he believed this, 
That the good news that he was meant to bring into the world was for those who needed it most. But there's one more thing. That if you don't understand, you won't understand Jesus. You won't understand why he does what he does. The rest of the Gospels, whether you're in Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. That Jesus believed he was here to proclaim good news. And he wanted to proclaim that good news to those who needed it most. But here's the critical understanding that you can't miss. That Jesus believed that the good news that he was bringing had the power to change the world. It wasn't just... I have some really nice things that God wants you to know, those who are poor and grieving and mourning. I have an encouraging thought that will lift you up for the day. I, I have a nice religious thought that you can put on a bumper sticker and will, and will give you momentary uh, relief from whatever you're facing. No, no, Jesus believed that the good news was more than that. He believed that Inside, within this news that he was bringing, there was the power and the capacity to change the world. That those who decided to follow his teachings and those who decided to follow the trajectory of his life, emptying themselves, losing their life, as how Jesus describes in his teaching, that those who had the, had the courage to lose their life would not only find their life, save their life, but they could be a part of changing the world. And Jesus was convinced of this. He was absolutely convinced that this message had the power to change the world. It's why he allowed himself to be crucified. Because he was convinced, absolutely convinced, that his message of good news had the power to change the world. If you're ever thinking about going to Rwanda, here's a warning. It takes a while to get there. It is not a hop, skip, and a jump to Rwanda, and it certainly isn't a hop, skip, and a jump to get home. It takes about seven days to get home from Rwanda. At least that's what your body feels like. And in the process, you lose eight hours. I have no idea where those eight hours went. I've been looking for them all week. They don't seem to be coming back to me. It's, it's, a, it's an experience, an adventure to get there and to get home. But being there, being there in Rwanda is just amazing. First, uh, you, you've seen just a hint of this already. You'll see much more in the weeks to come. Rwanda is beautiful. I mean, just gorgeous. It's, it's the, the, the richness, the, the, the amount of green that you see, is, it's, it really blows you away. It's a beautiful, beautiful country. Uh, the first two days that we were there, the way that Zoe structured our trip is that we spent most of the first two days with uh, kids who were either in the third year of their program at their point of graduation, which graduation is no more financial assistance from Zoe, they're self-sufficient, or kids who were post-graduation, had been, uh, been graduates for several years. And so the first couple days, all you see is tremendous success. I'll tell you more about the program in weeks to come, but, but that's what you need to know about these first two days. All you see are kids whose lives have been pulled out of this place of hopelessness to this place where they're getting close to being able to, to, to provide for themselves or past that point. And it's nothing but celebration. I'll show you just a few pictures from those, those first few days. This first picture was our very first stop, and these were some kids who were showing us their brand new homes and to see their pride and their joy as they welcomed us into their very modest dwellings. What was an amazing experience. Um, this next picture is from a cassava plantation. That's what that root is. We actually got to harvest some of that root. That root can be processed 
in such a way that it can be made into porridge, which not only gives them their own food for nutrition, but also uh, it's a product that they can sell to support their families. This was from the celebration there at the cassava plantation. Most of those celebrations involved a testimony, a child talking about how their life had been transformed, and lots and lots of dancing. Every single one, there was lots and lots of dancing. Dancing that would often turn into, go from their dancing to our dancing. We're dancing together. So they would come and pull us into the dance and we would celebrate with them. And you just see the tremendous joy on the face of these kids, the pride that they expressed in the way in which their lives had been changed. These are uh, uh, some girls from the banana plantation that we support, a little five-acre banana plantation there uh, in Rwanda. They were so excited that the pastor was there. They were harvesting um, these uh, uh, bananas on that day that they wanted me to, with a machete, cut one of them down. We'll show you that video later. Um, this, is, uh, this is a group that actually graduated in 2012. So these are some of our kids that are many years past graduation. They have a beautiful corn plantation. They shared that with us. This is from a graduation service. This girl was the president of their working group. Uh, this was, how many of y'all know the song, This is the Song That Never Ends? This is the song that never ends. I don't know if it was that song because it was in a different language. But it was that song, okay? <laughs> this, this was a dance, and you can go to the next picture. You, this is like, this is like 15 minutes into the dance, okay? <laughs> and this, this song, as we were dancing to it, like it would kind of build, you know? They get a little bit louder, and then and then they start jumping, and you're thinking, this is the finale. It's about to be over, and then we just kept on dancing. I mean, it was. <laughs> But again, just overwhelming joy at, at what, they had, what they had accomplished. This, this next picture what is the banana plantation. That's the president of the working group there in the front in, in the red. This is the place where I harvested the bananas, quite, a, quite an experience. These were some bananas that they had set aside for us, waiting for us to get there to, to share with us in this celebration. You see smiles, you see joy, you see pride, you see all the things that you want to see when you go to Rwanda and, and, and you see these kids. That was uh, the first two days. The third day we went to church, it was a Sunday, uh, had the afternoon off, and then on the fourth day we were there, we got to have a greater appreciation for where these kids come from. So we went to see another group who were not in the second year or the third year or post-graduation. Uh, these were kids who were just starting out the program. Uh, it was their second meeting. This is a kid named Joseph, a kid who didn't know his name when he was a child. He was found in a bush, raised by a woman for several years until she died, and he was again orphaned and alone. Um, this, is, uh, this is Clarice. If you got my e-note from Rwanda, I share with you Clarice's story. Clarice is 12. She has six younger siblings um, and has no idea, had no idea how to take care of herself and, and her younger siblings. In the midst of them sharing a little bit about their life, uh, our job in this moment is just to listen. It's just to listen and to, to, to take in the experience. And as you can imagine, it was, it was heartbreaking and it was awful. It was awful. Um, there was, within your own heart, there is this rebellion that says, Lord, make this not true. Somehow, Lord, make, change. I don't want to believe that this happens in the world. That's, that's what you were feeling as you listened to their stories. But even in the midst of this, this heartbreak and these awful circumstances that they were reporting to us, there were moments where you just felt God's presence. This, as Clarice told her story and, 
and, and shared with the group. She broke down. She covered her eyes in shame. And these two girls who were sitting next to her stood up and literally held her up there in front of us. Um, this next picture, uh, that's Epiphany, uh, who leads uh, the ministry in Rwanda. Epiphany is the Mother Teresa of Rwanda, and I'll tell you more about her story in weeks to come. But you see her there just offering comfort to this little girl as she also shared with us her story. Most of these kids had not eaten in three days, and we were on our way to lunch. It's just awful, 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 awful. And yet, leaving them, having seen what their peers had done, having the experience of, of joining into the celebration and the joy and the pride that other kids had expressed, there was this sense of hope that we had in, in leaving them, that their lives were about to change, that grace was going to transform their world, that this, this young girl in a few years could be this young woman. If you've been to Christmas Eve the last couple years, you've heard her story. This is Grace, uh, a graduate from 2012, and this is Grace's new new baby that we had the chance to meet and, and, and share with. To be there, to hear their stories, to join into the dance and celebration and joy, and to be there in the midst of sorrow, in the midst of heartbreaking stories and circumstances, knowing that grace is the bridge between the brokenness that we saw and the beauty that we experienced, you cannot help but wonder if grace can do this in their life. What might grace do in my life? And what might grace do in your life? We are not alone. We, we live in God's world. And in God's world, we believe that grace has the power to change everything. Jesus believed that. He absolutely was convinced of it. That the good news that he was bringing had the power and the capacity to change the world. And the question that, that I think we have to wrestle with is, do we believe that? Do we really believe that? That grace has the power to change everything. Their world and our world, your world and my world. That grace has the capacity and the power to change everything. In this season of the year called Lent, that's L-E-N-T, not L-I-N-T. The other one is from the dryer. This is a, a season in the church year. The season of Lent is a period of self-examination. Uh, it is a time for us to pause and to think about how God might lead us to live more like uh, he would want us to live. Where might grace be more evident in our life? How might we more closely follow the way that he's called us to live, the teachings of Jesus, the way of Jesus, the downward movement of losing ourselves for the sake of others? That's what we do in the season of Lent. And so in these weeks, as we look at the stories and hear the stories of these kids in Rwanda, and we think about a story of grace, what God is doing in the world, what God is doing in your life, this is the question I want to invite you to wrestle with with me. What would it look like for me to more fully participate in God's story of grace? What would that look like for me to more fully participate in God's story of grace? If grace can change everything, what does grace want to do in my life? How does grace want to transform me? And so to close, I simply want to invite you to a time of prayer. 
I invite you to close your eyes and quiet your hearts and think about this question. What would it look like for you to more fully participate in God's story of grace? And as you think about that, I want you to listen to these different expressions of that question. Is there someone in your life that you need to forgive? Is there something in your life that you need to let go? Do you in this season need to receive grace from Jesus? Do you need to allow him access into your life in a new way that would enable you to see how worthy God sees you of the love he wants to share with you? Is there a hurt or a wound in your life that needs to be healed? Are you in the final stages of that healing process or are you just beginning? Waiting for some sort of bandage to begin the process of binding up that wound. Do you need in these weeks to stop reliving the bad dreams of a past mistake? Or a particular difficulty you have faced? Do you need to reconnect with others in a way where you are more aware of the fact that you are not alone in whatever challenge or difficulty you may be facing in your life right now? Do you need to live more generously? Does the grace that you have received in your life need to flow more freely out of your life into the lives of others? Do you need to trust more deeply in the idea that the way of Jesus is a better way to live. Lord Jesus, we affirm today that we are not alone. That this world that we inhabit is your world. And that in your world, Lord, grace has tremendous power. We thank you, Jesus, for the beliefs that guided your life. The belief in good news. Good news for those places in our life and those moments in our life when we need it the most. And we thank you for your audacious and crazy belief, the conviction that led you in every moment of your life that this good news had the power to change everything. Forgive us today, Lord, for those moments and in those circumstances when we have doubted that. For those places in our life where we find ourselves wondering, will this ever change? Will it ever get better? Send grace there, Lord. Send grace into those places where we need you in a mighty way in this season. And help us to know what it would look like for us to more fully participate in a story of grace. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.